Open up with me to your copy of God's Word, to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter, chapter 1. This morning I practiced uh, the sermon just a bit, and I accidentally said, please open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, so I got that out of the way for you. I thought I would let you know that happened. Page 45 in the Bible provided for you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. We're picking up this morning right where Genesis left us off. Let's read together. We'll read just the first 14 verses. These are the names of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's stores, cities, Pitom and Ramses, Ramses. Uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Well, Exodus is a story that picks up where the book of Genesis left off. There are the marks of it even on these first few verses. It actually begins with a word that you don't see on the page. The whole book begins with the word and. Now we've been taught not to begin sentences with and. I submit to you that the Bible begins a whole book with the word and. This book picks up where the book of Genesis left off. Even the first nine words here in our English Bibles are found toward the end of the book of Genesis. You might have even thought that's where we were as a kind of summary of who made it into Egypt. We're picking up where we left off. It doesn't pick up exactly where Genesis left off, of course. Some 400 years have passed. Exodus is the story of what happens after Joseph has died and has been forgotten. And that should be an ominous note because it was who Joseph was to Pharaoh and to the people that made the reception so warm for the Hebrews there in Egypt. Oh, it's not good news that they would have been forgotten. The Hebrews are once honored guests and now they're a perceived threat. Threats to God's promise, as we've seen so many in Genesis, continue now into Exodus. The serpent is indeed working to strangle the people of God. The people are under hard service. They're in bondage. They're told their life is bitter. They're building cities for this world's king. They are fruitful and multiplying though. But is this really the blessed life that God has spoken of? Along with the irony we've come to expect in God's war with the serpent, so we see irony here. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. And if you could hear that in the original language, there's a word play. The more he tries to hold them down, the more they proliferate in number. Go figure. Exodus is the story of what happens after Genesis, after Joseph has died. Exodus is also the story of how, of how we come to know God. Turn with me to the end of the book of Exodus, the end of the book of Exodus and in chapter 40, we'll be just there for a few moments. I want to show you the end. Spoiler alert, there are plenty of little stories between the two sides of the book, so I'm not giving everything away. 
You ever seen a movie where it begins at the end and then the screen goes black and you wake up maybe to an alarm or something so many days or a year earlier? We'll do something like that. Chapter 40, verse 1. We've seen the setting at the head of the book now, there at the end. The Lord spoke to Moses. There's a new character saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Now look at verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen for the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Hmm. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, From over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. You can go back to the front of the book now. We know, we know that God can and will deliver his people from any any threat, no matter how big it is seems or from where it comes, but how will he do it? That's always the question. How exactly do we get from the situation in chapter one to the situation we've just found in chapter 40? From building cities for this world's king to building a tent for the Lord, from bondage in Egypt where God must have seemed so absent to the blessing of his very presence among them. How do we get from hard service in these first verses in the first page of the chapter to service in the Lord? How do we get from bitter lives to a life bonded with the Lord? How does does this people get from being jammed up and stuck in Egypt for so many years to journeying at the Lord's leading by the end of the book? Between the pages of these two chapters are found untold and to many familiar elements of drama. Midwives who will outsmart a king, a shepherd who provokes the rage of a king and delivers his people through mighty acts. We've got a thundering and shaking mountain. We've got water parting, a staff being raised and all kinds of miracles conducted. Scenes we could not recreate with our best technology and we'd laugh at or just assume were CG, of course, if we saw them on a screen. And all of this, in all of this, we will come to know the God who makes himself known. That God would reveal himself to us, to you and to me, has been my prayer for us in this short three-week series through Genesis. This is why we've titled the series Exodus, the story of how we come to know God. That's God's agenda for all who will read this book. Yes, as we'll see, it is the story of how the people on the page come personally to know God. It's also, as we'll see, the story of how Israel, who would have received this book in this form, comes to know God. But it is also a story whose purpose is to bring you and I into the knowledge of God. And as we'll see throughout the book, God has a purpose for the nations to know the Lord. And by the way, we are those from among the nations who have come to know the Lord. Here we are. And his purpose is also for his people to know the Lord. And well, we need to know him better too. God will, in the way that he delivers his people from these threats, Reveal to us something of himself. And he will reveal himself to us in the preaching of his word in a way that is more profound than if we had been here for all of this action that we're going to, we're going to read. God is going to reveal himself to us, I pray, in three steps for what will be three sermons in the series. He'll reveal himself to us through how he saves. That's chapters 1 through 15 today. He'll reveal himself to us through what he says to the people he saves, chapters 16 through 24. And he will reveal himself to us through where 
he settles, chapters 25 through 40. In all of this, we will learn something, I pray, of what we're saved from, what, friends, we are saved for, because that hasn't changed, and the one to whom we are saved, because this whole thing is very personal. It's personal to God. It's supposed to be personal for you and for me. I pray it is. Well, today, chapters 1 through 15, God makes himself known in how he saves. I want you to see today that God saves in such a way, an exacting way, and you will see how he goes about this, as to make known to us his glorious power as to make known to us his glorious power. Let's keep this simple. We'll spend our time today in just three images, just three images, three powerful images for deliverance, three powerful images for Israel's deliverance out of Egypt, and three powerful images that reveal to us who God is through how God saves. The first image, fire. Turn with me to chapter 3 of the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest at Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning And yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Let's hold right there for a few moments. Who is this Moses? In the first place, Moses is a son of Abraham. And as God spoke to Abraham and to others, now he has come to another son of Abraham down the line so many hundreds of years And he is speaking again. Moses is also the grandson of Pharaoh. Hmm. Now, what happened there? Well, the Bible's story is filled with irony. And in chapter 1, verse 15, where we left off, some pretty incredible things happen. A threat to the people multiplying. That is a threat to Pharaoh and the multiplication of the people. Means they keep multiplying and to deal with this threat. Pharaoh orders the slaughter of their firstborn. The Hebrew midwives are to kill the children. The midwives feared God. Moses' mom hid him. He was a fair child, apparently. Then, when she couldn't hide him any longer, she put him in a little basket, and she put him in the water, and Pharaoh's daughter found him, And she thought he was beautiful. And she allowed Moses' mother to nurse him and keep him. And Pharaoh's daughter would eventually adopt him. And so Moses grows up a prince, a grandson of the king of Egypt. Who'd have thought? Moses is also a son-in-law to Jethro. To Jethro, a shepherd in the place where God's people are originally from. Don't Egyptians hate shepherds? Well, yes. So what happened here? Well, Moses identified with his people. He grew up in this palace. He grew up a prince, but he had apparently known where he came from and to whom he he belonged. And he, he counted his own people in association with his people and identification with the promise of his people. Indeed, the promise of a Christ. He counted all of that of more worth than his his riches and his treasure in Egypt. He identified with his people, the Hebrews, a shepherd people. And so he defended a Hebrew under Egyptian oppression in one specific instance and put that Egyptian to death. He shouldn't have done that. Put him on the run when Pharaoh found out, ended up in Midian and married into Jethro's family. So so he's a son of Abraham. He's an adopted grandson of Pharaoh. And he's also a son-in-law to this Hebrew in another incident where he intervenes, we can see that he, he learns some self-control in time. For 40 years, Moses was there as a shepherd. God was 
apparently preparing him for something. And we see him transformed in a way. Moses, saved in an ark through water. It's the same word used there for basket. In the wilderness, Moses, for 40 years. Would not the first readers, Israel, who received this story, have identified themselves with Moses and his life? Would not Moses even be the embodiment of their very life in his early years? How encouraging were these words? Look at just a few verses before chapter 3, in verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And then he lights up a bush and calls to Moses. That's a bit on Moses. Now to Moses' question. I will turn aside and see this great light, why the bush is not burned. What did Moses see in this great sight, in this fire? What began as maybe a scientific inquiry, although he wouldn't have put it that way, will yield a supernatural discovery. If Moses was surprised by the appearance of the bush, he was more surprised by the sound of the thing. He saw the bush in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Well, the first reason the bush is not burned up is that God is speaking again. Here he is. His silence was deafening to the people. And maybe, maybe you can relate. I mean, God has spoken to us in his son. He's with us by his spirit. But periods of long waiting Mark the history of God's plans and even our own age. We wait for the Lord as we have sung. We even groan inwardly as we await the completion of his plans. When he brings us to himself. But God here is speaking again. He is not so far away. His silence was deafening. Yes, we can relate. Moses held tight to the things God had said to his people in years past. And that's why Moses was pleased to identify with his people. He didn't consider his adoption into Pharaoh's family an escape from what would have been. It was in some fashion a part of God's plan. Where did he go? We're not always sure. Oh, but God has spoken now. Here's the first thing he says, verse 5. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. That's the second reason the bush is not burned up. What is going on with this bush? Well, God is speaking and God is holy. He's not like us. And so Moses can come close, but not close. Not too close. He needs to take his sandals off a symbol that he's in a special place. Fire, fire draws us in, doesn't it? It was an appropriate, was an appropriate mechanism for attracting Moses. And yet fire destroys us if we get too close. Yesterday, a group of boys were up here. Thank you, young men, for clearing the wooded area just next to the church. And they had their reward of lighting the whole pile of leaves and stutch on fire. Even the fire marshal had to come for us to do that. Why is that? Why do we even have a fire marshal? Fire is dangerous. Fire is dangerous. Don't get too close to fire. Of course, we know that. An appropriate sign. It's one reason the bush is not burned up. God is holy. Remember that image of fire and the holiness of God, by the way. Put a pin in that. Verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of 
Jacob. And this is the third reason the bush is not burned. This is the covenant God. He is speaking and he has purposes and he's going to be here and talking for a while. He is the God of promise. The God who in the image of a flaming pot years earlier made his way through the pieces. Those animals split and cut in two. God's way of saying, if I don't keep my promises, cut me in half. He swore on his own life and signed it in blood. He would bring about his word. Now look at Moses, verse 6. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He sees a bush. And when he finally understands what he sees, Moses hides. He cannot look at this bush any longer. Not God. God looks on his people and God sees their plight and God cannot look away. Verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sufferings. Yes, this book is here so that we might know God. Before we know him, he has known us. The fourth reason that the bush is here, God sees, God knows Fifth reason, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. He's going to do something about it. To deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He has waited long enough. That's the fifth reason. He's waited long enough. He promised, remember, to Abraham in in Genesis 15 that his people would be delivered into the land, but only after many generations of hard service. Servants in another place and hardship would come. Maybe that's why Moses understood that eventually God would do something, even though the people were under a hard yoke of slavery. And why would God wait so long? Well, perhaps he had other purposes. One purpose is revealed in this book, namely to reveal his power in a particular way, to say something to us about himself through the way that he's going to save. This story without which he would not be able to reveal himself in that way. But another reason is he wasn't ready to deliver his people into the land of Canaan that he'd promised to them because the wickedness wasn't great enough there yet. You see, God is not, if you will, unjust to deliver his people into that land until that land is ripe with its wickedness and that land on its own terms is ripe for judgment. God will deliver them into that land and that will be a judgment on the people in that place and the disgusting, terrible, ruthless, murderous things that take place there, God will put an end to, even as God is giving birth now to his people and will settle them in his place. So that fifth reason is that God has waited long enough and he is ready now to judge. A sixth reason, verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt God is going to judge the people that are in the land to which God is taking them, but he's also going to deliver and save his people. He's a deliverer. Our God is a deliverer of his people from their troubles and from their groans and from the things that they cry to him about. And he does so in his time. Remember Joseph's words? God will surely visit you, carry my bones up out of here. The book will end. Joseph's bones are on the move. And when the people heard this, chapter 4, verse 31, we're told the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. God is speaking to Moses through a bush because he's visiting his people just as Joseph had promised them. God has waited long enough and now God is visiting Why is this, if you will, not exactly burning? 
bush appearing to Moses in particular? Why has God chosen Moses? Is it something great about Moses? Some credentials that he has? Maybe he's a match for the task. We were told that he was a good-looking little kid. He's lived in Pharaoh's presence. He's taken out an Egyptian, guy's strong. He's been a shepherd a number of years. Man, those guys are really ripped. Is he a match for the task? Absolutely not. And of all people, he knows it. He knows himself, and he's lived in that palace. And he's not prying those people out of Pharaoh's hands. We might resonate with Moses' predicament and his hesitation. I mean, friends, look at us. We're not a terribly powerful-looking bunch. And I suspect the church will grow to feel and look increasingly weak and look increasingly uh, obtuse, upside down, peculiar, and may it be so. Moses was not a powerful man. But remember that God works out his plans, as we will learn in this book, in such a very specific way as to reveal his power. He makes known his power in weakness, and Moses is a part of that. Moses objects to God at a number of points. You might be familiar with this. In terms of his inadequacy, who am I? His insecurity, they're not going to believe me. If I try to lead God's people and I start talking about the bush and the fire and what you said, I mean, uh, we're not going to want to exactly leave the yoke of slavery that we're in for some mysterious future on account of my word. I don't exactly expect they'll believe me. I'm not even eloquent. His ineloquence was a problem on his mind. Well, God would put words in his mouth. God had an answer to all these things. He'd give them signs to prove to the people that he was, in fact, behind Moses' leadership. Finally, Moses just insists that God send someone else, and God gets angry about that. Um, uh, I mean, just don't say no to God. Don't say no. And Moses says no. God gets angry at him. You can get angry at your kids when they look at you and say, no. But God is gracious as well and sends Aaron with him to be his assistant and help, even to speak for him. The point of all this, the point of all this is that it is God who's going to do it. He will put words in Moses' mouth. He will give him signs to perform. He will perform his own work through the man he's chosen. Who is he? that he can do all this? That's the question. Who is God to do these things that he is saying? It all hangs on him. Revealing who he is is his point. Chapter 3, verse 13, tucked into the middle of these objections, Moses has an objection. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. What's your name? What's his name? I am. Strange to the ears, and it was to theirs. It was meant to shock. Does it mean I was who I was, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be? It actually means all of those things. It is a way of saying, I'm not like any of you. I stand over you. I'm around you. I'm before you. I'm adequate for all those reasons. I'm constrained by nothing outside of myself. But he is the God of Abraham. And he's the God of his fa- these fathers, which is to say that he is constrained by one thing inside himself, namely 
his steadfast, loving commitment to keep every promise that he has made to his people and be encouraged that God isn't held back by anything that threatens us. He is only held back. He is only held by his promise to do everything that he has said. It won't be your power, Moses, that pries the people out from under Pharaoh's grip. It will be mine. And it will not be your power, church, to see all that God has promised come to fruition. Oh, but it will be God's, and the gates of hell won't stand against his church. Use my name, Moses says. And so we pray in Jesus' name. This is special, this name Yahweh. He says, I am that I am, and then he gives him his name, Yahweh, the Lord. There's a whole history of of how the people of God didn't want to write down the full name and there's some translations down the way. We end up mistakenly with the name Jehovah. That's why I'm just going to cancel every song we've ever sung with the name Jehovah and it doesn't appear that often, but it's a mistake. Yahweh is God's personal name and I only offer that side, that side, uh, that, that little trail there because apparently God's jealous for his name. He gave us a name. Say it, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, I am who I am. This name is special. It's new. In years past, to this point, he's shown up at a time and been gone. He's shown up to a man and he's spoken and he has left. Oh, he was with us. He was with them, but it was different. Here now, this is God making an introduction, a personal introduction to his people. Remember our series title, the story of how we come to know God. He is bringing his people to know him now personally. This is God making himself known. Hear these words as these kinds of things are put in different terms a little later. From chapter six, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. All right, so this is something new with Exodus. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Here it is. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He's known them and he wants them to know who he is, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham. I am the Lord. Take my name. I want you to have it. The main reason the bush is not burning is ultimately because God is working now to make himself gloriously and powerfully known. In Exodus 4.22, Moses will say this in making God known to Pharaoh Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Moses will say to Pharaoh, Israel will get themselves, if you will, a new personal name too, my son. And we will see who's more powerful, the firstborn of Pharaoh or the firstborn of the Lord himself. Slaves though they are. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh will say, I do not know the Lord. And the rest of the book will answer the agenda set by Pharaoh's own claim. And he will know him before it's over. That's the first image, fire. A lot of groundwork is laid in an early point. And so the others will be more quick. 
God is going to deliver his people from their impossible situation. He will do it through Moses, but he will do it by his own powerful name. A second image now, image of blood. Turn with me to chapter 12. Chapter 12, an image of blood. The Lord sent Moses before Pharaoh with a demand, let go of my son. And Pharaoh replies, I don't know the Lord. Who is this that I should obey him? Pharaoh would find out. And by the time we get to chapter 12, he's already had an opportunity to submit himself to him. Let's just parachute in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Set your watches. He is giving them plans for some kind of meal, and it involves blood. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boil it in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why? For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The Lord shall be, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What is this image of blood? What are we to see In this blood, well, in the first place, this is the blood of lambs. Very straightforwardly, this is the blood of animals slaughtered for a meal. The blood, secondly, makes for their deliverance from Pharaoh in some fashion. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt at night. I'll strike all the firstborn of the land. He's executing judgments on Pharaoh. God's already brought a series of nine plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh has hardened his heart time again and to ensure that his power is very specifically and dramatically seen throughout the whole earth and to Pharaoh, God even hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's had plenty of time to turn. He is the serpent's pawn. Nine plagues have utterly, as the people themselves cry out to Pharaoh, ruined Egypt. Egypt is ruined economically. Locusts and gnats and frogs and what have you have just smothered the place. Egypt has been ruined religiously. These nine plagues get at Egypt's idols that she worshipped. Egypt was ruined personally. People are dying. And Egypt was ruined politically, weakened, though she was so strong. Her source of life and her water source, the Nile, is trouble for her now. 9-11 was nothing. Watched a short video this week. You can watch um, all the little, little lights scan the sky. Look at a little, little video of, uh, of, of, uh, of Earth that they've recreated, excuse me, over America, uh, all the, the flight patterns, and you watch the little planes. The sky, it's a normal day at the morning of 9-11. The planes are all over. It's amazing how many are in the sky at one time. And then you can watch as a plane hits a tower a plane hits a tower, a tower goes down, and a tower goes down, and then and the Pentagon gets hit somewhere in there. 
And all of a sudden, you can see the emergency measures called and planes grounded and the sky goes dark. You can think of that. That was an attack on our land. Egypt's attacked. And she goes dark. A coronavirus. Whatever becomes of that, nothing. Total ruin. The judgment on the firstborn, which is to come, that will be the worst. The blood represents the judgment of God on Egypt and how God would in some fashion come to deliver his people. But why exactly do they need to mark their own doorposts with blood? God has protected them from other plagues before. Can't he do it without this strange thing? Is the angel of death getting a little up there, not able to do the job as he, he used to so reliably? Or maybe he's new and can't quite be trusted. This is his first assignment. The angel of the Lord, of course, is the embodiment of the Lord himself. It even is, if you were to chase this down theologically, our best understanding would be it is the second person, the person of the Son. But moving on, Israel had been spared the damage from other plagues. Why do they need blood on their own homes? It is a sign for them, verse 13, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. It's a sign of deliverance from the judgment that apparently they also deserve. The blood is representing the substitution. An animal, a lamb, unblemished, exactly as God had required, is offered and killed in the place of their firstborn. Their firstborn are passed over. Blood, a second image, an image that shows us that God delivers his people from Egypt not only through judgment, But apparently he delivers them from judgment. Not only from Pharaoh in Egypt, but in an important way as we're learning, from himself. From the judgment of death. This simple act of faith, to do this very simple act with blood. For the blood to be marked on the doorpost of the home is to be delivered from Pharaoh and the judgment of God. A second image, blood. A third image, water. Turn with me to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Fire, blood, now water. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and he will get, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What does God want us to see in this body of water where he has led them to a very specific place by, by the sea? What does God want us to see? First, he wants us to see an, a humanly insurmountable obstacle, a humanly insurmountable obstacle. A chasm that cannot be crossed. Here God drives his people into a corner between a rock and a hard place, between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's whole army. Pharaoh will load up 600 chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And he's going to come after the people. After that night when they put blood on the doorpost and the angel of death came through, killed all the firstborn, Pharaoh gave in and released the people. Some of the Egyptians, even in the plagues before, were trying to get rid of them, giving them their stuff. Take this, take this. Um, There may have been an identification with the Hebrew people and their God, even among some of the Egyptians in those judgments. By the way, an indication that God is not just making a distinction here between Egyptians and his people, but he makes a distinction between those who identify with him by faith and those who harden themselves against him. 
Some of the Egyptians will even make their way out of Egypt with the Hebrews. It's a mixed multitude by the time they get to the other side of the sea. But this is a humanly insurmountable obstacle. 600 chariots, Pharaoh released them and then he hardens himself and changes his mind and then comes after them. Look at all that he has seen the God of the Hebrews do, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do, and he defies God. Their response, the people's response is understandable. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Yikes. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Apparently, they've been grumbling from their departure and they're quoting themselves as having been right and vindicated now that Moses led them to this place. There is no way out. They saw the failure of God's plans. They saw the failure of God's man. They looked at the water and they saw a humanly insurmountable object. They saw their own death in that water. And they would see the mighty power of God to save. Verse 13, Moses said, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And God backed them into this corner in order so that they would make, they would know firsthand his mighty power to save. Verse 15, why do you cry to me? Lord says, tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so Moses stretches out his hands And the waters are parted, making a wall on either side. And the people walk through on dry ground. When the Egyptians went in after them, the Lord throws them into confusion and clogs their chariots. And when the people are through the water, Moses stretches out his hand again and the water crashes down on the Egyptians and they are done. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Your right hand, glorious in power, O God has delivered us, they will sing. A truly transformative experience. Kind of. There was a transfer of place. And there are these indications of worship and a proper response. But there was not an ultimate transformation of this people. Look at me in chapter 15, verse 22. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. After this had happened, and they went into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness, and they didn't find any water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? What is going on? Well, apparently yet, there is more power needed. There is more power needed. More power needed for a total deliverance from sin. More power needed for total transformation. This story of Exodus is the continuation of the story of our beginnings. It's the story of how we come to know God personally, how God makes himself known personally to his people. But it's really more like, for us, a a small model. You think uh, one of our brothers here is into model trains, and we have good conversations about these old model trains. There's all kinds of model trains. 
model train can't pull the cargo you see running up and down our city when it stops you inconveniently. I mean, it's incredible what a train can pull. A model train, that's just giving you a sense of what it looks like in miniature. This right here, these mighty acts are only just a little model of what God has in store for us, of what he is going to accomplish. In the coming friends of the Lord Jesus, God's beloved son, who said of himself before Abraham was born, I am. In this son, God has powerfully met our deeper need. In the Exodus, God came down to deliver his people out of Egypt, but in the gospel that comes through the Lord Jesus, God comes down to deliver Egypt out of his people. In the Exodus, the Lord transfers his people from Egypt to their land. In the gospel, the Lord transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. In the Exodus, God delivered his people through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea, not unlike what he did with Noah or with Moses as a baby through the Nile or with Israel later through the Jordan. In Christ, God delivers us through the waters of judgment, which is pictured for us in our baptism. In Exodus, God put the judgment of death on Egypt for the sake of his son, Israel. And on the cross, God put judgment on his son for our sake. Something we picture now in the Lord's Supper to which we turn. Is it any surprise that the Lord Jesus, when he ate with his disciples on the eve of his arrest, did so in connection with that annual celebration of the Passover? Those men who are helping serve the Lord's table today, please come forward. Is it any surprise that he did it this way? The bread representing his broken body and the cup representing his shed blood for us. A sign of a new covenant. It's not exactly the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our substitute. His blood, when it's on the doorpost of our lives by faith, be still and God fights for you. When it's on the door of doorpost of our lives means that we are safe and the angel of death passes over us and though we die yet we will yet live. Well, let's pray together. Father, as we behold this bread before us now representing the broken body of our Lord Jesus, help us in our minds to remember what he's done for us, to behold the lamb who bears our sins and his body who is slain for us and to remember all the promises that are ours in him because of his death. He's taken away our sin and so that we have no guilt before you, no matter what happened this last week, we are accepted before you at this, your table. We thank you for this personal welcome and for all that you've done to make us so welcome here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.